Kleber, what sound does a dinosaur make? <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of Renar Voice. My name is Robert Swatala. I'm one of the co-hosts for Renar Voice, and with me, my co-host, Jeff Mazone. How are you, Jeff? Good morning, Robert. What's going on, bro? Not much. So I got a question for you. You ready? Oh. <laughs> I know. I know. It's always scary for you. And, and just for our audience, we we don't we don't typically don't plan these questions. These are surprise questions. So you're getting it right from the surprise. I think it's rather self-evident that there's very little preparation <laughs> that goes into any of this. That's very true. <laughs> so, all right. Yesterday was Halloween. Okay. For our listeners. Yes. Today is November 1st when we're recording this. What is your favorite Halloween costume that you dressed up as a kid? All right. This one goes out to Dr. Kirk. When I was in elementary school, I dressed up as a Star Trek character. Which one? Spock or Dr. Kirk? Or no, just, just it was Next Generation. No, Next Generation, because I grew up watching Captain Picard. My church actually did a play using Star Trek as its theme. Okay. Um, some type of integration with pop culture, yeah. you know? And uh, I borrowed one of those costumes for Halloween, and it was awesome. So I had, like, the red uh, Star Trek, you know, Starfleet uniform. It was pretty good. Nice. Now, did you yeah. did your kids go out? Did you do any trunk or treating or anything like that? Okay. So, all right. So, trigger warning for all you evangelical Protestants out there, because everybody knows Jeff's Catholic. You know, we celebrate All Saints, right? Today's the Feast of All Saints. Right. So, try to do both. We do Halloween, so like cute things for the kids, and then on the next day is All Saints, so they dress up like as a saint. So, like Mother Teresa, for example, Saint Francis, sure. all these, all these guys. So, this year I finally was like, you know what? <laughs> Let's just do it. Let's just do the Halloween thing. So Sophia was a cow. Oh, nice. And, okay. and she's five. And Claire was uh, a dinosaur because she'd been practicing her roar for like the last month. Very nice. And Claire's two. So there's nothing like two-year-old going, roar, in a little dino so, costume. So can I give you some parenting advice for Halloween? Please. Yeah. So yep. you need to institute the candy tax. It's 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 really to get them used to sp paying taxes in their lives. So when they come back, you take 30% of the candy and say that's tax to me. And then that way you get your candy that you, you know, from your kids. Okay. See, that's helpful because we we're trying to navigate the whole candy thing. Yeah. And one parent told us, let them eat all of the candy in one day, and then you don't have to deal with it anymore <laughs> after that. And they'll be actually sick Six, of it. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's like a conditioning, yeah. some type of behavioral conditioning there. You know, <laughs> Right, right, right. Uh, and that, you know, it sounds so crazy. It could actually work because the alternative is for the next several weeks, we're going to be giving them one to two pieces of candy every day. That's right. It's part of their diet. It's gone. And yeah. every day is going to be the struggle of, can I have more candy? No, because we want to actually sleep tonight. So that's helpful. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Free, some, free, like some free advice for you. Thanks for that. No, I don't have to pay a tax on that? No, no, you don't. You're good. That's great. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So we're not here to talk about Halloween. I mean, please. No. So, so we got a, a great guest today, and we're going to talk about a, a topic that we haven't touched at all, which is really cool because I'm excited to, to talk about it. And I think it's it's maybe a little bit of a scary topic, keeping with that Halloween theme. Oh, yeah. Um, um, for Especially for, for new counselors uh, like me and you that are, that are working through through our internship. So I think it's going to be a, a very insightful topic and uh, conversations today. So Jeff, can you introduce our, our guest, please? Yeah. So we have um, Dr. Christina Villarreal-Davis, uh, who I had for 601, the uh, the family's 
counseling course. And this whole idea of like families and couples, like Robert, like you said, th this is like the Monty Python run away, run away, kill a rabbit experience of counseling. Like it's been my experience that in practice and internship, none of us want to deal with families and, and couples because we don't feel sufficiently equipped to do it, right? We're like, we're ready for individuals. But when you hear family or couples, it's like, run away, run away, right? So we got to go for it. Um, so we thought that we'd bring on my professor because that's what this podcast is, just bringing on my professors. That's right. I really that's enjoy right. having, you yeah. know, because, you yeah. know. So uh, to introduce Dr. Christina Villarreal-Davis is a licensed professional counselor and supervisor in Texas. She's a registered play therapist and supervisor and an assistant professor of counseling at Liberty and chapter faculty advisor for another online CSI chapter like our own, Ro Ada Ro Mu. Her practice, teaching, and research interests include play, Santre, and expressive arts therapy, child-parent relationship therapy, also known as CPRT, marriage and family therapy, working with children in foster care, military families, Hispanic families, PTSD trauma, neuroinformed approaches in counseling, multiculturalism, diversity, student engagement and advising, and creativity in online counselor education and supervision. Dr. Villarreal Davis is also the founder, owner, and clinical director of Wellspring of Life Counseling and Play Therapy Center, where she oversees 15 counselors and the supportive staff. There, she provides counseling services for children, adolescents, adults, and families, along with supervision for Texas LPC associates and those wanting to obtain the registered play therapist credential. So, Dr. Villarreal Davis, thank you so much for being here, and I hope that I've done some justice to trying to pronounce your last name. I apologize for any failures there. <laughs> no, that was great. That was really great. Thank you for that introduction. Um, I also want to add a little bit to the Halloween conversation. And okay. if you grew up where your family, you know, was trying to definitely do the right thing in, the, in God's eyes, you only got to dress up. <laughs> I didn't get to dress up as anything else but like an angel or Jesus <laughs> or something like that, you know. All right. And we only went uh, <laughs> trick-or-treating at our church candy hall. So that was my experience. So I said I would never do that for my kids. And so this year, my... <laughs> Um, eight-year-old was, I mean, seven-year-old was um, a witch, and she emphasized that she was going to be an evil witch. And I said, on our way to church, that uh, being an evil witch, you know, may not be a great idea. We're going to church. So she decided she'd be a good witch. And then later I found out the only evil part of the evil witch was that she was just going to get a lot of candy and eat a lot more than she should. <laughs> so I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, very uh, good. My other son decided to not, um, he's nine, and he decided that his costume was a little bit too snug for him. So he was just going to be, uh, he loves soccer, so he was um, wore his soccer uniform. And then my other son, who won two prizes at two different parties, was that big, huge blow-up dinosaur. He's a lion. Yes. So yeah. he loved the attention of just being able to, um, you know, waddle around from house to house, basically, <laughs> like a pregnant woman trying to go get candy. About halfway through, he, he I thought he was going to pass out. He was like, I'm so <laughs> hot. And I'm like, well, let's take it off. You don't have to have it worn the whole time. There's a fan that blows to keep it aired up and give you air, but it, it was just too hot. So I thought I'd just add that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. So that's well, great. Anyway. definitely excited here, you know, to be here and talk about working with families and couples. It is a very scary thing. I mean, in general, right? Starting practicum internship is scary for everybody. Mm -hmm. But then you try to do something that you haven't really been trained to do, or if you haven't taken 601 yet, you know, that is very scary for sure. Yeah. And thanks for that. I think that's a great kind of 
normalization of what it seems like a lot of us are, are feeling. So just to get right into it, um, can you just explain to us a bit about the differences in beginning and sustaining counseling with couples and families as opposed to kind of what we're more prepared for uh, with individuals and, and maybe touch a bit like what's with the hesitation that students seem to have working with couples and families? Sure, sure. Yeah, there definitely is that hesitation there because I think a lot has to do with, and you mentioned this earlier, is that you're trained to see your first person, not your first family, not your first couple. You're trained to see the first person. Um, and typically the way that we relate to children versus adults is also very different. And so we're trained to work with that individual who's like, can who has a lot of uh, great cognitive and verbal skills, right? And that's not children or when we work with families. Um, so, so that's where I feel a lot of the hesitation comes from. I think that our programs in general, there's not really a requirement of what it looks like to work with, you know, couples or work with children and families. And so that's where that hesitation definitely comes from. And there is a different way that you approach um, working with uh, couples and families than you do with individuals. Um, one of the big differences, I guess I'll start with just working with couples and what that looks like. So now when you work with couples, you're working with two individuals, right? As opposed to one. And so you're, there's a lot of things that go into that. So I'll just try to highlight that could be a whole like, you know, presentation of in itself, but um, I'll just talk about some of the um, differences that you might see in working with a couple. So you're getting two consents from, you're making sure they both understand um, that uh, they are in this process and what that looks like for them, you know, both individually, but as a couple. Your identified patient may be, and for billing purposes, may be just one person, but your identified patient is the couple. You're working with the couple. Um, so the therapist has to really, um, really do a careful job of emphasizing that. And they're, they're not here to say, you know, one party is right and the other party is wrong. They're here to address the couple. And and if you've ever had any training in EFT um, or E um, with couples, EFT with couples, then you know that the problem is more the identified patient, not the couple. Um, so we're here to address the problem that the couple may have and not necessarily individually. So you have to emphasize that from the very beginning that, um, and I think that could definitely be an area where some counselors, you know, may find themselves in where maybe it's a little obvious where the problem might lie. But if you think from a family systems perspective, so when you take 601, you learn that, um, that the, Again, the identified patient is not a person, it's it's the family or the couple. And so we're working with the family systems and how the issues and problems that they're presenting with are a systemic issue. Everybody plays a role in creating and perpetuating the problem, not just one person, even when it may seem maybe a little bit more obvious that the problem may lie with one individual. What is the other individual doing to sustain that problem, to perpetuate, to make it worse, to exacerbate it? And so um, those are some things that when you get family systems training that you learn about. 
Um, um, you know, and I don't actually have an LMFT background. You know, my degree was in, back then it was community counseling, now it's clinical mental health counseling. Um, and so unless you're in an MFT program, you know, you get a lot of systems trainings and how to work with couples. But when you're in a clinical mental health program, um, you don't get that training as much only uh, other than your 601 class, you know, your intro to working with couples and families. And so I would say that that is a huge difference is how you view the situation and problem, um, addressing the couple that you're working with and what that looks like, that the problem is doesn't belong to either one. And um, but it, it, it is an issue of the couple. Um, and not necessarily one party or the other. So those those would be some of the differences that stand out to me. And there's probably a whole lot more, like I said, but those are those are two huge things. Yeah, thanks for that. And, and definitely have felt that in my experience. It's I think it's an interesting thing to have two individuals that approach things, conflict or whatever the problem is like you said with probably two different filters and then there's the emotions there's the relationship and it and i think at times it for me it gets a little i don't want to say overwhelming but without that background and the experience i know that i've sat in that that chair thinking okay what what am i going to do next because things may get heated and, and, and you're kind of the emotions are rising and it's like uh oh you know, I almost have to play kind of referee in this. And, and and I'm sure I've made some mistakes and I think we all do. But in your experience, could you share with us some pitfalls a new uh, clinician should look for, try to avoid as we're working with couples and, and families? And also on a related topic, you know, as we're working with couples, there comes sometimes uh, obvious, it becomes obvious that maybe those individuals are best served as individual counseling in individual counseling. And then maybe after there's a, a growth or some healthiness established, bring them back into a couple counseling. Could you just share maybe some some kind of red flags or indicators on when you may need to pivot to, to kind of separate from that counseling or the couple's counseling point of view? Yeah, sure. So that definitely is that what you mentioned is definitely something you want to look for too. Like, is this couple right for couples counseling? That's the big question you have to have. Um, there are some obvious things, you know, if, if the couple is in a relationship where there is some kind of domestic violence occurring, um, where there is a strong power control, you know, going on to where the other person is not going to really open up in counseling or, or wouldn't benefit from a couple's counseling. Definitely that's one area. If you have, you know, an active, uh, you know, client within the, you know, the, within the couple, that person is actively suicidal or homicidal, you know, those are obviously some red flags. Another huge red flag when you're working with couples, you know, after there's been an affair, that can be another whole topic too. But one thing that is emphasized, there's different approaches. One that I really like is called discernment counseling. And you actually have to get trained in discernment counseling to implement it. But one of the things they emphasize in discernment counseling is that the relationship has to be over. So a lot of what couples do, um, and this can be whether there's been an affair or not, but, um, you know, is the couple really all in? Are both parties all in is what you're determining. If both parties aren't all in, they don't want to work on their marriage. They already have in their mind that, you know, 
you know, that they don't want to do this counseling. They're being dragged by their spouse. Um, there's nothing that can be done to fix it. Not that there's not hope. They might initially have that attitude. But after that initial assessment, if they're not really, if both parties aren't all in, willing to set aside whatever it is, and we're going to work on this, um, it's really hard to meet those goals if you have a person um, that has one foot out the door already. Or, you know, it doesn't matter what you say, they were already planning to file papers tomorrow for a divorce, you know, then that's, that's really hard to work with that. You're working against, you know, the person who wants to, you know, work out the relationship. Um, so that those are definitely situations um, where, you know, couples counseling may not be the best option. Um, and maybe they need their own individual counseling first. Um, and I've had situations too where, you know, we felt like we were ready to go. And after a few sessions, we just, it was just determined that, you know what, I think we need to put a pause. And that happens often. You know, it may not happen after the first assessment. You may really feel like, okay, they're both all in, there's nothing going on. But boom, three sessions in, you found out, no, this person's still talking to the person they cheated on, you know, or this, you know, other situation you know, has happened to where, you know, abuse was denied, but there is abuse going on. Um, so we need to put a pause on that couple's counseling and we really need to focus on the individual work. Um, and so, and, and I think another big thing that comes up is do you, if you're seeing a couple, do you see them individually too? Um, and there are different opinions about that as well. And basically how I, I've done it in different ways and made maybe some mistakes and pitfalls before in the past in doing that. And what I've deci mo decided mostly is that um, when I see a couple together, um, I won't see them individually unless it's part of an assessment process that I need to do. Or if I need to assess, like I just have that gut feeling that they're not sharing something in couples counseling and I need to meet with them individually. And, but I don't keep an ongoing individual counseling relationship with them. I say, you know what? I feel like we're really stuck. I want to meet with you both individually before I move forward. And that's also part of discernment counseling in the beginning process. Something that can be very common in the beginning process of couples counseling. Because part of assessing whether a person is all in is meeting with them with individually and assessing, are you really all in? Um, and so that's a really important part of it. But maintaining an ongoing individual counseling session with someone while doing couples counseling, in my opinion, is not a good idea um, because you can't be the individual uh, individual's therapist and their couples therapist. Then you begin to have a more skewed and biased point of view because um, you're also this individual couples therapist. What's really great about the practice that I work in is that, you know, there's many other counselors. So when you work in a, in a group, you know, it's good that you can provide those referrals. Like I really feel like you need individual counseling, or if you're working with an individual and you feel like they need couples counseling, let me refer you to my colleague, so-and-so, um, so they can get that needs met. And then it's easier to kind of have, you know, get that release of information and be able to communicate with the other therapist, um, you know, working together um, in that aspect when you feel like it's very beneficial in working together with the other, either the couple or the individual's uh, therapist. So I would say that um, that definitely can be a pitfall for, you know, first time counselors learning how to do couples counseling is really addressing, you know, is this couple right for um you know, couples counseling at this moment. Yeah, that's that's really good information and advice. Um, I want to circle back to the situation where you find out one of the 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 
partners isn't all in. Can you just share like how you then maybe pivot to that other individual that was in still invested? Do, do you still try to counsel from a marriage standpoint or do you then pivot to maybe it's healing or grieving or, and also if there's family and children involved, how does that process work in terms of really the intent was probably marriage and couples counseling. And then after you find that one isn't all in or maybe still involved with an affair or addiction or whatever it may be, and the marriage becomes clear is not going to make it. How do you, how do you transition that service into the needs of the other partner in the family? Sure. Yeah, that can be definitely bothersome, hurtful, lonely for the person who really wanted to make the relationship work. And then just realizing that, I mean, that's, that's going to be their own grief and loss journey. Um, and at that point, you know, really shifting to their own individual counseling and healing from that is going to be the best avenue for them. They're going to need that support tremendously um, to get through um, that grieving process. And then having, you know, the next question is, if there's children, is how do we, you know, help our children understand this? And, and so there can be some co-parenting sessions to help, but you also too, you need to assess, you know, are the couple able to do that together? Is this something that they want to do together. A lot of couples will want to address the situation together with their children, and most couples will. But if you've ever been involved, you know, in the divorce process and those type of proceedings, I, I personally just don't like it because in divorce, it just like once you get to the legal process of divorce, it just gets it can get really ugly sometimes. And so I really work hard with parents to not put their children through that. I've seen it so many times. It becomes a battle of who gets what, you know, who gets what time with their children and who's the custodial and non-custodial. And at the end of the day, you know, you really, I would, I always encourage clients that I work with um, that, you know, really it's so hard to not put your needs and your wants first I mean, you really have to try to put your children's needs and wants in first. And then when they start to define that, it can look different, you know, because parents see, see it as I need to protect my child from the other parent for whatever reason. And sometimes there are very valid reasons, you know, if you have a very abusive parent in the home that's abusive to the children, you know, um, obviously in those situations, you know, couples counseling, again, you know, may not be the best, but if they're already all out, and there's times, too, that you just have to say, you know, there's matters that are of legal matters, and that's not something that we're qualified, you know, to advise on. And they, you know, will need to get an advice of attorney of how to, you know, best proceed that. Um, but the ideal situation that probably every client, I mean, every therapist wants is working with a family that really both really want to put their children's needs and mental health first. Um, and so those are the ones that I, you know, we all enjoy working with that are going to, you know, that are in a situation where maybe they've realized, you know, you know, this isn't going to work um, and we've got to move on from this and we want our children to heal and move on through this. We don't want to add additional trauma to the already traumatic separation of a family. And so for children, you know, there is that hope. 
Um, but, you know, situations are going to happen and children may need their own, you know, coping and counseling um, through it all. And so I, I love working with children in these situations, too, um, because it gives them that opportunity away from the parents to really work on their issues. And that may be its own separate topic as well as working with children, you know, individually by themselves through those situations. But we can also pull families in as well in working on those divorce. Ideally, again, it's a family, it's a family situation where both really do put the children's interest at first. And you may be able to work with uh, the family as a whole coping through this. Um, and that, but that's kind of also very rare and far and in between. I've worked with a lot of children. And when I bring in the family members, I typically have brought in the family members separate, you know, work with the children and the mom, work with the children and the dad, you know, going through this emotional, you know, roller coaster that it can be for children. That's a great piece too. I mean, that, that's a whole nother episode because it seems like that's the other Monty Python killer rabbit is just working with children individually. Uh, I, yeah, I just, gosh, that's rough, especially in the context of divorce and especially in the context where perhaps the child is oblivious or even denying the effects of the parental separation on their mental health and functioning. I mean, gosh, that that's a whole nother challenge. Dr. Villarreal Davis, just a question that I had, just a quick follow-up, like, what happens in the context of the couple counseling where you do get them individually, perhaps, and one of them shares a detail about the other that they don't necessarily want that person to know that you know, if that, if that made sense. I, I recently had an, an encounter where I was seeing the family, but mostly the husband generally, and he had shared that his wife and her previous marriage was forced to have an abortion and that that's kind of like this thing in the marriage that they don't talk about. And as we were preparing to terminate, I said to him, like, you know, that is probably something that should be addressed, but I'm not going to be the one to bring that up. And he's like, well, I don't know what to do either. You know, I'll get to it. In my mind, I'm like, he's not going to get to it. And, and so, like, we're kind of doing the termination process together. And in my mind, I'm like, there's this huge thing that's probably worth talking about, but I don't know what to do here. And now the relationship's over and I don't know. So just any, any thoughts on that? Like how do, how do we leverage kind of that whole messy dynamic? Yeah, that's a really tough, tough, <laughs> tough situation to be in. Um, when you're working with just that person individually, you know, I think you've done all that you can uh, to emphasize, Hey, there's this big elephant in the room that hasn't been addressed and you can't force that on them, but you can emphasize that it does need to be addressed. And, you know, also just kind of letting them know that you, this is still going to be, a, you know, a concern or issue that will pop up if it hasn't been resolved. And, you know, it's their choice whether they want to bring that up or not. Um, and it was, it would be something that if I was in your position, you know, definitely would refer out to a couples therapist since I'm already working with that person individually, you know, that to address those issues within the couple, but it may be something he avoids too for never knows how long, but, you know, problems that aren't addressed are going to resurface over and over again in some form or fashion. Um, and all you can do is plant those seeds in those situations. 
Now, something that's a little bit different too, when you're working with couples and you may have, let's say, let's say, let's take that same scenario and you were working with the couple and you saw him individually and her individually as part of your assessment process. And you knew that this was something that was affecting the marriage and working with a couple, you knew this was something that wasn't going to go forward. So an important key to that, and also maybe one of those other pitfalls that counselors may not be aware of, is that you have to have this policy. Either you're going to keep secrets or not keep secrets when you're working with a couple. I recommend no secrets, and that has to be in your informed consent. So when you're working, again, the couple is your client. So if you meet with a individual by themselves, you know, this is one of those things that you may not come out and say, hey, this is what he said in you know in my in my uh, situation i mean my session with him by himself and kind of in some ways you don't want to break that confidentiality but you may you're going to put that out there that says that you know i can't move forward in couples counseling if this issue it doesn't come up and it's not addressed um so you are going to have to set some boundaries there um, when it comes to whether you're going to hold secrets or not hold secrets um, Janice Abrams is an author that's worked a lot with affairs and that, that's a, that can be a huge secret, right? Like that I'm still, I've told my wife and a, or, or husband, you know, I've made them believe that I'm not still having this affair, but I actually am, you know, where's counseling going to go? Not going to go anywhere. Couples counseling is not going to go anywhere if you maintain that secret and you keep working. So as a counselor, like you can't hold on to this secret in a way and continue to work with the couple when you know that you're not going to get anywhere if you know that affair is still going on or if the like you said the addictions that's another huge one you know a lot of couples are some issues with porn addiction not just alcohol substance abuse addiction um you know but what's considered an affair you know is is this pornography addiction you know considered an affair um and what we know from scripture you know where a person's heart is you know that, you know, that issue, the issue of the heart still there. Um, so there's these uh, different, uh, I guess, guidelines that, that you got to have when working with a couples. And that definitely would be a guideline I would recommend when you're working with a couple. Now, that's different in your situation where you're working with the person individually and, and not necessarily working with the couple. But I would establish a no secrets policy and that. Um, if there's things I'm aware of that are going to influence the outcome of our work together, I won't be able to continue to work with you um, because I know that it has to be addressed and I know it has to come up. So in essence, if you establish that way before, at the very beginning as part of your informed consent, um, then they are very aware of that. It's not something that they just signed. It's something you go over, you know, hey, you all signed this, but let me explain it further. I have a no secrets policy. And this is what it means and outlining that to them. So when you meet with them individually, go back to that. Remember, we talked about that, the no secrets policy. This is definitely something that, you know, has to, you know, that will come up, that has to come up. These are part of the issues. So when you go over their issues and your treatment planning, you know, this is one of those issues and letting him know that him or her, you know, I'm saying him because you were talking about your situation with the individual man that you're working with, but whether it's him or her, you know, that, you know, these are the issues that are outlined that we'll have to continue to resolve and work through. And in that situation, like an affair was still going on, even though, you know, I say, okay, we need to come clean with this, you know, in order to move forward, I can't move forward without this.
That is great practical and just really sound advice. And I was wondering if maybe you could expand on some of that practicality. It's a, it's often a very difficult and emotional time with the couples. That's why they're there. Something's going on. Like you said, addictions, pornography, <clears throat> affairs, whatever it may be, it's, it's going to be emotional. And those emotions, what I've seen tend to come out in the room, maybe not as, as explosive as they do in the home, but they still come out. When do you kind of draw the line of when those emotions become too much or, or not productive in the session, you know, kind of refereeing that when, when do you say, Hey, time out, it's getting a little mm -hmm. too, too far. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Being, it can definitely feel like being a referee. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'm going to say a couple of things. One thing is, part of your informed consent and working with couples, it's going to have those guidelines and rules. Like we're never to the point where we, we disrespect each other. Um, we can express how we feel and we can learn. And I, and part of the counseling process may be teaching them how to express how they feel. Um, but I almost wanted to say too, that I don't want to No emotion is, is, is too strong or too, you know, maybe the way you present it might be disrespectful in a way. And that's where those guidelines like, you know, policy might be, you know, we don't yell or we don't uh, are disrespectful to our other partner. And what does that look like? So mean, it may be like we don't yell at our partner. We don't use uh, language, um, you know, that would reference our partner in an ugly way. Um, things like that that are part of those, you know, policies where you might have to step in and be a referee, where you might, and and I've definitely had those instances. And I come from a very, so my work with individuals and children comes from a very person-centered Rogerian approach. And so I'm always, I believe so much in the power of the relationship um, and how healing that can be. And part of that is having deep empathy for the person who has those strong emotions. So my go-to is going to be to acknowledge those feelings. So I may say, I, I can tell that you are really, really hurt and angry by this. And it is it hurts you to the core. So I'm gonna really connect with them in that way by communicating that empathy and that understanding. And then I'm gonna follow up with, and I know where this is coming from, um, and we talked about one of our boundaries is, is that we're not going to yell, or we're not going to refer to our spouse in a negative way. Um, and, and that's what's just occurred. So I just want to tell you, like, I understand exactly where it's coming from. But at the same time, let's let's see if we can come up with a different way. What I like most about emotionally coupled focused therapy is that it really does um, emphasize the emotional expression and the partner understanding the emotional expression of what's going on. Um, and just doing um, ECFT could probably be, like I said, another whole podcast. Um, but um, in my experience that I've had and just learning and using it is that it really is, it, it, to me, it does come from this humanistic approach, but also an experiential approach. So you're working with couples, you know, it might be, what was it like to hear your spouse, you know, say this, you know, and then that really gives the other spouse the opportunity to be like, okay, not do you agree with your spouse or how are you going to defend yourself to what your spouse has just said? No, it's 
What did it feel like for you right now to hear your spouse say that, and I'm just going to throw out an example, that when they come home from work, the first thing you mention is why they haven't done something, you know, and, and then we switch roles, you know, what was that like for you to hear your spouse say that, you know, they had this maybe epiphany that, wow, you know, it felt like. I felt like I might have been frustrated, you know, or I might have been this or might have been that, you know, to help them understand each other's feelings and emotions. So it's almost like we we put them in that role of what it's like to truly empathize and understand your spouse. You know, I think we learn about other techniques, which are great, like using I feel statements, you know, or active listening. But when we put them in a position where they take a situation and we say, what was that like for you right now in the moment, experientially? What was that like for you to, and, and I'm throwing more words, I wouldn't necessarily say all of that to the client, but I'm, I'm throwing out some terminology that we are learning in maybe theories and in counseling that we emphasize to get them to be present in the moment and also to pay attention to their cues and their body, you know? what was your body feeling, you know, because our body, we have this bodily reaction um, that happens, you know, whether it's a, uh, in our gut or that, you know, in the pit of our stomach or hearing someone say something, our heart hurts too. You know, we pay attention to those body cues definitely can bring out a lot, you know, in not just the counseling, but in working with couples and, and their counseling relationship and working with them to really have a felt experience of what their spouse is feeling and experiencing. And when they have that deep understanding and they start understanding each other, they can better work towards solutions to their problems. Dr. Villarreal Davis, I mean, we could go all day with this because, I mean, obviously this short podcast can't even possibly scratch this. I mean, we're scratching, but there's just a lot here. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in hearing you talk, there's just so many different directions here. And, and, but thank you for bringing kind of the umbrella of all the issues into this very focused conversation. Cause I, I hope just your sharing can kind of serve as a vehicle for students or other professionals to be like, oh, yeah, you know, I really need to learn more about that because this is happening or, gee, you know. So, mm-hmm. I mean, thanks for being here and sharing your insight and your wisdom and your experience and your time. I mean, like I said before, you, sure. you clearly have no time to be here with us and yet you've oh, made time no, no, for no. it. <laughs> I enjoy this. I enjoy this. And I want to say one more thing because we really didn't get to touch on working with children and families, okay. yeah, please. but I will just say one thing as a registered play therapist and working with young children, we have to have a knowledge of what play is for children. So play our children or the toys that we use in our therapy. So, the famous quote by Gary Landreth is toys are children's word and play is their language. And so we have to find a way to facilitate that understanding with family. So I do a lot of um, expressive arts, santre play activities when I'm working with families. And I'll give you a quick example. We think of a, in family therapy, we think of a, a genogram. Um, and conducting a genogram. Well, how about a playful genogram where we help children use toys like Santry miniatures? Imagine a child picking a figure like, in the, in the spirit of Halloween, a witch for their parent, right? 
what would that, is it a mean witch or a pretty witch? What does it look like? Is it an angel figure that they pick for their parent? And we, it's not always black and white. Remember, like I was sharing about my daughter, you know, an evil witch was one that gathered so much candy and ate a lot, you know, and that's what she wanted to do for Halloween. Uh, but so we get a little bit more in detail of it, and this is definitely scratching the surface, but if you're going to work with families, especially families with young children, three to 10, 12 years old, we have to we have to be able to approach them in an experiential way that they can be involved. We can't expect them to talk and verbalize their feelings because cognitively they are not there, right? They're, they're not, their brains aren't fully developed. In fact, you know, you know, probably our brains aren't fully developed until we're 25. So adults can't even verbalize their feelings that well at times. Um, and so I'll just put that little caveat in there that if you want to work with families, you've got to know how to approach children. And even adolescents are so hard to approach. I think Santray and play therapy are two great approaches in working with children and families that can help students and just getting some training in that will help them reach that goal and make it a little bit easier at least so they can children have a voice a voice through toys miniatures and play dr Varial davis thank you so much that that's a great way to close us up and and like you said there's so many different pieces there that we could come back and hit on and and hopefully we can have you back on and maybe hit on the the, the play side and the children's side because the reality is um we're dealing with a lot of hurting families out there right now and so this is an important thing because I truly believe that one of mo the most precious things of our society and the fabric of our society is marriage and family. And it's under attack right now. And so it's really important, I think, as counselors that we understand some of these basics and some of these principles. So thank you for being on with us today and just sharing from your own experience and from your heart um, and taking the time. As Jeff said, I know you're very busy and, and you got a lot going on. So it's always very humbling and, and just very thankful that you're willing to invest in not just to us, but also our listeners. So thank you for that time today and everything you shared. We really appreciate it. Sure. It was great being here. Thank you for inviting me and having me. And I look forward to uh, meeting with you guys maybe again in the future. Yeah, that would, that would be great. <clears throat> Jeff, I want to say thank you to you. Uh, hope you don't eat too much Halloween candy and steal it from your, <laughs> from your daughters. Uh, but remember that tax. Everybody out there, remember remember tax, candy tax. Can mom's tax 30% oh, and dad's tax 30%? That way the kids are with the know, rest. You know, we never did that before, but that's a great idea. So there you go. Uh, that really cuts down on the, the candy. <laughs> Oh, I want to thank uh, everybody for listening. I hope everybody had a great Halloween. And um, so I want to wish everybody a blessed day. And thanks again.